Hello and welcome back to the Joint Venture Podcast, Inspiration Insights. My name is Oliver and this week we are joined once again by Jen Bocintu, our Senior Analyst. Hi Oliver. And leading the news this week we have our Senior Reporter, Zachary Skidmore. Hi Zach. Hi. In this episode we are going to cover all of the latest deals in the UK and wider markets from the news and also we are going to be introducing our very first official PPA update section. Also, Chen was going to talk us through some of the supply side issues with financing wind turbines and the manufacturing complications that have come up in that market in the last year and ask what the future is for manufacturing wind turbines. But as usual, we begin with the news. Zach, what's our first story? So the first story I'd like to cover is an announcement by Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners, who have commenced construction on the UK's largest co-located battery storage project. The project, Clive Hill, is the UK's largest solar plus battery storage project. The project, located in Kent, will have a capacity of 373 megawatts and will be connected to a 150 megawatt battery storage unit. The project is expected to reach operational status by the end of 2024, with initial consent provided in 2020, when it became the first nationally significant infrastructure project approved in the UK. In addition, the project has been awarded a 15-year contract for difference as part of the CFD fourth allocation round to support its financing. We've certainly seen a lot of uh, activity from the UK market in these more complex hybrid schemes with more uh, technology types being part of the CFD allocation, haven't we? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the UK has been at the forefront of utility-scale battery energy storage over the past five years. Last year actually um, added a record high 800 megawatt hours of new utility energy storage capacity. The bulk of the new capacity came from projects in the 50 to 100 megawatt hour range. The majority of the projects are owned by large asset owners, such as Gresham House and Pivot Power. These companies have huge pipelines of energy storage projects, which are now starting to be constructed, meaning that installed capacity is going to accelerate rapidly over the near to midterm. In the UK market, there is now 2.4 gigawatts across 161 sites of operational energy storage. 20.2 gigawatts have been approved in planning, including 33 sites of 100 megawatts or more. This means that these projects are likely to be affected by any future planning changes before the projects expected to be completed in the next three to four years. This kind of indicates the continued growth within the UK battery energy storage market, with the future likely to be dominated by large-scale utility projects connected to renewable assets. Uh, moving on, I think we have some news in the floating offshore space this week. Yeah, so UK offshore wind developer, um, Corio Generation, Norwegian renewables business at Energy, are joining forces to build what could become the country's first floating offshore wind farm. Um, the new company, which is called Nordvegen Wind, will look to develop the project in the Usteria Nord section of sea off Norway's southwest coast, which the government has opened to bidders. Um, it's expected that around 1.5 gigawatts of capacity will be offered to bidders when the process reaches its conclusion, with this company designed to act as a launch pad for Norway's supply chain to engage with the global floating offshore wind sector. This is not the first time these two companies have come together. They joined forces in early 2022 um, to prepare a floating wo- offshore wind project for Australia Nord in the Norwegian Sea, and together the partnership has so far developed a 20 gigawatt offshore wind development pipeline, 5 gigawatts of which is floating offshore wind, 
and is active in nine markets with their project development pipeline. Corio has extensive experience in the floating offshore wind sector with planned projects in Taiwan, Australia, South Korea and the UK. So it's definitely a company to watch in the future if you are interested in floating wind. It certainly is. And this week we have had an analysis out about the UK's new task force to take on offshore wind and help develop uh, projects in the floating offshore wind sector pipeline. Uh, If you want to find out more about that, you can see that on the Inspiration website right now. So the next story I'd like to highlight was announced by EV charging developer Zest, who has won a 60 million investment from Zook Capital's Charging Infrastructure Investment Fund. The Zook Back Fund had initially invested 30 million in Zest in 2021, but the company's commercial advancement since then has led to a doubling of this commitment. Zest was launched in 2021 with the aim of developing a charging network that values accessibility over everything else. Um, EV charging has generally become a hot topic within the sustainable infrastructure space over recent years with although there's questions to over its commercial value um, companies have continued to heavily invest in the sector in a recent q a with era novum there were a number of barriers which are highlighted to the e-charging infrastructure rollout namely in project permitting with both the authorities and distributing companies highlighted Thanks, Zach. Uh, Let's move on to talking about data centers. Okay, there's two prominent um, news stories in the data center market this week. The first being Atlas Edge, who secured a 725 million facility for data center development. This was underwritten by ING Bank, as well as ABN, Credit Agrigal, the Bank of Nova Scotia, National Westminster Bank, Santander and UniCredit Bank. The facility comprises 525 million euros in committed debt facility financing and a further 200 million euros in uncommitted accordion. The accordion function will support Atlas Head to target capital towards customer-led growth projects and expand the facility based on future demand. The second um, notable news story within the data center market was the acquisition by KKR of Cool IT Systems, a scalable liquid cooling solution provider for data centers. Um, The investment made by KKR will support the company's scalability across the data center market including enterprise, high-performance computing, and cloud service provider segment. Liquid cooling has been earmarked by the Octopus Sustainable Infrastructure Fund as one of the areas where major efficiency gains can be achieved in the data center market. Talking exclusively of Inspiration, Investment Director Lukas Michalek stated that the major improvement in data center efficiency is in the transition from air-cooled solutions to liquid-cooled solutions. Thank you very much, Zach. As mentioned at the top of the show, we are now introducing our first official PPA update. We've covered so many of these stories as part of the news up to now. We now (laughs) think there's been so many signed in the last few weeks that we need a dedicated section to get through them. So, hope you enjoy. And we luckily have Chendwa here, our PPA expert, to introduce us. Yes, so very excited to kick this off. And to begin... I will point out a recent PPA that's been signed between Conrad Energy and BNP Paribas. The deal um, has a tenure of 15 years. And the electricity will be sourced from the Laporte solar farm near Hereford in the United Kingdom. The solar farm is expected to deliver 40,000 megawatt hours of green energy annually. What's important to note about this project is that it will be co-located with a battery asset and this will essentially support um, consistent energy flow into the grid and to BNP Paribas. The second um, PPA of note that was signed this week was between Sonodex and Sidinor. Sonodex announced the signing of a 12-year PPA with the steel producer 
and it's guaranteed by the Spanish Export Credit Agency. The renewable energy supplied under the PPA will be derived from the solar PV plant Sonodex has in Frial, which has a um, overall capacity of 36 megawatts. Supply from the installation began in March, so it is currently running. One of the PPAs that caught my eye this week was a corporate PPA signed between Britvic and Flogas. So the soft drinks business Britvic Island and uh, Flogas Enterprises announced the signing of a customer corporate PPA. The agreement was linked to Songa Old Wind Farm in Ireland, which had a total capacity of 7.65 megawatts, and the energy provided through the CPPA should produce enough electricity to annually power Britvic's Newcastle Westco plant in Limerick, the production facility, and 75% of the company's total electricity requirements. So as we can see, the PPA market has been very healthy in 2023 so far. However, the question of the affordability of PPAs um, is still an important talking point and still an important issue for entities uh, looking to sign PPAs and entities looking to enter PPAs as more and more corporate off-takers and more and more um, developers are seeking to offload and buy electricity through renewable PPAs. Thank you for that, Chendwa. And thank you, Zach, for the PPA news updates. Whenever there's a big pile of PPA stories to get through, we'll certainly bring that section back. So we've already talked about plenty of wind in the news section. However, one of the things that limits these um, new developments is often supply side issues. And Chenba has been doing some research into that for us this week. Yes, Oliver. And it's, it's quite obvious that turbines are the revenue generators of wind farms. And it's quite interesting to see how much these turbines are being sold for on an average basis from different turbine manufacturers in Europe, which is the global hub for wind energy. What's happening or what I've noticed is that several turbine manufacturers are facing credit challenges due to um, higher raw material prices and a backlog of orders that are difficult to work through quickly. So this is this has led to credit downgrades for some companies, including Vestas, who we sat down with earlier this year, and mechanical drive component provider Flender, at the same time, other large turbine manufacturers such as Siemens, Gamesa and Nordex are also facing um, profit concerns. As a matter of fact, the turbine prices for all three of these companies, Vestas, Nordex, Siemens, Gamesa, has been raised about 20% since last year. And last year was already showing a trend of rising prices, so prices have gone up even further. Now, what's important to note is that the positive imp- impact from these new orders is expected to take is still expected to take some time to materialize. So, what we might see is a sustained high price environment until orders are filled and the effect of these high prices is felt by the turbine manufacturers. So, let's dig in a little bit to the the causes of this. So, a large share of these wind turbines are going to be put in projects which have been uh, one at least partially through financing of auction-style systems, which incentivize the lowest possible prices for um, construction. And that's obviously going to be putting a squeeze on the amount of money available for production, while at the same time, the as you mentioned, raw material goods are coming up. So how has this affected their bottom lines, and what risks does this pose going forward? Yes, yeah, so you're absolutely right. A lot, a lot of projects are being developed through government auctions, which do offer some sort of fixed fix price mechanism for um, revenue. And it is particularly for this reason 
that the industry is moving away from fixed price delivery contracts that include price escalation clauses to improve profitability and reduce the probability of default. We're also seeing this in several auction mechanisms um, around the world, which are themselves introducing uh, price indexation to help shield developers um, from inflationary pressure. Um, we saw Orsted recently complain about um, how the cost of developing projects it's won through CFDs in round four might be too high um, to ensure any reasonable profits. At the same time, the International Marine Contracts Association has noted that contracts in their current form are particularly unfavorable and the risks of developing projects offshore in and the risks of developing particularly offshore wind projects need to be shared more adequately. Mm-hmm. Because these projects are built on a non-recourse basis, a lot of the risks are placed on developers, suppliers, and contractors. And because of the pricing environment we are in, they are accepting risks that are damaging to them. And this could, if sustained, mean that several contractors will move to oil and gas instead of staying with offshore wind. Because, of course, a lot of these same suppliers which build these turbines and the parts for them are specialists in the marinization of technology and have the option of working with unsustainable technologies. So I suppose it's in the interest of these governments leading these auction schemes to keep the profitability in a renewable, sustainable space. So what specifically are the risks? So on the contracting side, um, for the supply of several components for offshore wind projects, including the turbines themselves. The International Marine Contracts Association had released contracting principles to help share risks more adequately. And some interesting points here are of note, a few of them being insurance cover. So large projects should be covered by a comprehensive construction or risk insurance policy purchased by the developer, but made available to the contractor. However, to ensure the reduction of costs of insurance, various carve-outs are now typical, which reduces and obscures the actual cover available to contractors. Another one that I thought was important was payment terms. So projects grind to a halt if payments are not made to to a contractor in a timely manner. And so it's important that developers need to manage their cash flow responsibly um, to ensure that uh, contractors are able to keep the project going. One more I'll highlight is the limit of liability. So before commencement of any project at all, all contracts should limit the maximum financial exposure to an agreed level so that the contractors are not exposed to unlimited liabilities and ultimately default. You mentioned there was a change in uh, the auction mechanisms but are there any changes that need to be made to like the project finance agreements that these developers sign up to? So on the government side, they've done this indexation, but it's really all about how well can you negotiate? So can you get a good deal on your turbine prices? Um, have you looked into the future for um, vessel availability? Um, have you situated your project so it's close to a port that has the capacity to maintain your wind farm? Or are you going to build that yourself, which is another added risk? And you say you've got all the contracts down already. There's a probability that someone will default on something. Have you got backup contracts as well? So the allocation of risk is most definitely one-sided from developers and their banks to the supply chain. 
which is not the case in the oil and gas industry, which understands the dynamics of offshore and construction and the marine environment. And I think it's also important to note that in oil and gas, the cash flows from producing a well are such that it's almost always worth it to spend more to get things done faster. But in offshore wind, this isn't the case because of cap revenue structures that mean cost discipline is of utmost importance to getting things done. So there's a lot of risks, there's a lot of potential problems and pitfalls for these developers. But I read your article on this, Chenma, and in the end, the tone was somewhat hopeful for the future of the sector. So so yes, there are several risks um, that perhaps are not being balanced adequately. Um, but several large projects have already reached financial close this year. At least in the offshore wind space, the capacity of projects that have reached financial close already exceeds that of the whole year of 2021 and the first quarter of 2022. So there is scope for many, many more orders to be filled by turbine manufacturers and for those higher prices to be felt on their balance sheets. And this is why it will take some time for the positive impacts of these higher prices to materialize. The sustainability of current offshore wind contracting has definitely come under scrutiny, but with more adequate risk sharing, even on a non-recourse basis, there is scope to ensure that the project is profitable across the supply chain. Thank you so much for that, Chenva. Very insightful analysis and more details and visualizations of some of the stats that uh, Chenva mentioned there are available in the form of an article on the Inspiration website, as usual. Thank you so much for listening this week. It's been a jam-packed episode. We'll always welcome your feedback at podcasts at inspiratia.com. We'll be back again with more next week. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.